All right, good morning, Trace. How are we doing this morning? Awesome, awesome. Hey, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so thankful to have you with us this morning. We really, 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 really are. And so thanks for coming here. You could do a lot of things with your Sunday, but you chose to be here. And so thanks for coming. Have you guys watched the fight last night? Yeah, awesome. Corey and I are going to reenact that later up here. So he said he gets to be Mayweather. That's like, no, that's not good. But uh, guys, seriously, thanks for being here. Um, I want to give you a couple updates on what's coming up. Many of you that have been coming here understand that like, we've been working on this. We've been in this building, I think this is like the fifth or sixth week. And so we're trying to get a lot of work done between now and the grand opening. But I think it comes with the territory when you do a renovation. Things don't go as planned, right? I mean, that's kind of the way things go. So a couple things we found were out of permit or out of code, I should say. And because of that, we had to go back to the drawing boards and change some of the plans, which pushed, postponed. The, uh, some of the renovations, but with all that said, we're still trying to get, we're going to try to get done as much as we can between now and September 10th, which is our big grand opening. So when you come in here next week, uh, we've actually got a company coming in this week. They're going to paint the ceiling, paint all the walls in here, so it should look really different. But we need your help. Uh, this coming Friday and Saturday, we have small windows to work with based on when we're getting dumpsters coming and different things like that. Um, but when you walk in the lobby and you look up, there's a ceiling. We need to take out that entire ceiling. We also need to take out the wall between the first lobby and the cafe lobby. That wall goes away and becomes one big lobby uh, and so we need we need help we need your help tearing all that stuff up and so like if you're mad at your wife or husband right now mad at your kids just come take it down some drywall that's what we're asking you to do it's therapy so um, if you can help us that would be great we'll talk about this a little bit more at the end of service uh, but that'll be this Friday we're going to give a window of time you can come help and or Saturday morning and early afternoon so just wanted to give you a heads up on that well hey um I want to start our conversation out this morning with a little bit of crowd participation. Uh, how many of you would say you're rule followers? Like you've just, that's who you are, you've been that way your whole life, awesome. How many of you would say rules are made to be broken? Okay, let's be honest. Okay, keep your hands up. Let's make sure we get these guys' names so they don't ever serve and trace kids because we don't want to teach our kids that. Um, in, pre in preparation for this conversation, I actually looked up some really bogus rules uh, that exist in the state of Colorado, and of course we call these laws, and uh, I think you'll appreciate these, so let me share a handful of them with you. Here's number one. If you live in Alamosa, it's illegal to throw missiles at cars. Okay, just say, keep your missiles at home, okay? Uh, number two, uh, if you live in Aspen, catapults may not be fired at buildings. Just so you know, no catapults. Number three, it's illegal to allow one's llama to graze on city property. I'm like, really? Like, I'm going to take my llama and go home then. You can't even eat some city grass. Number four, in Denver, you may not drive a black car on Sundays. Just so you know, okay, because black cars are sinful. That's why. So, no, they're not. It's not, it's not real. It's not a true statement. Number five, it is unlawful to lend your vacuum cleaner to your next-door neighbor. How many of you guys would never lend your vacuum cleaner to your next door neighbor because you don't think you'd ever get it back? Okay, now be a good neighbor. That's what, that's, that's what we're supposed to do. Okay, number six. I love this one. In Sterling, cats may not run loose without having been fit with a taillight. I'm not joking. That is a real law. Cat fans in the room? See, I would actually, <laughs> somebody really, I, I, see, I would like put like a detonating device on cats, so if they ever go to the bathroom in somebody's yard that's not theirs, it just goes off. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not, like, I'm not that inhumane. Don't worry. I don't like cats, though. Uh, number seven, in Pueblo, I love this, in Pueblo, it is illegal to let a dandelion grow within city limits. Have you ever been to Pueblo? I mean, I mean, we got much love for Pueblo. If you're from Pueblo, we got much love for Pueblo, but I kind of thought like that was their city flower or something. Uh, number eight, in Vail, it is illegal to crash into obstacles on a ski slope. 
Okay, last one. Couches may not be placed on outside porches. Guys, I come from Kentucky. If this law existed in Kentucky, we would all be in jail. I mean, I thought that was like regular porch decor. You bring your couch and put it on the front porch. Like, right, our front porch is like a ministry. So, awesome. Well, maybe some laws are made to be broken. Let me do this. Uh, we're going to be picking up on our study of the book of Acts today, and we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 25. And I know I've seen a lot of new faces here this morning, and so I'm going to give like a quick recap to kind of where we're at. And I'm going to go really fast. I'm going to talk really fast. So just kind of stay with me. But here's where we are. We're, we've been following kind of the life of the Apostle Paul. And if you're new to church and all this is completely new to you, Paul is this, he was like one of the key leaders for the early church. He wrote a lot of the, wrote of the, a lot of the books in the New Testament. And what, where we find Paul today is he's actually been in prison for almost three years now. And the only reason he's in prison is because he decided to speak up. We talked about this a, little, a few weeks ago. And, and the reason he spoke up is because he had an encounter with Jesus. And when he had that encounter with Jesus, he finally understood that Jesus was the Son of God. Like, Jesus claimed to be that, and then they crucified him. But then Paul, as with a lot of other people, actually saw him after he died. So now, Paul's deciding, you know what? I can't shut up about this. I'm going to let everybody know what I personally believe. And I'm going to tell people that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, that he does have saving grace that he'll extend to anyone. It's not just for a select few. But Paul also knows that this is actually a law that's going to have to be broken. Because in the Jewish world, especially you know, the Jewish leaders in which Paul was one of, of these guys at one time, they said, listen, if you say that God is somebody that he's not, or you associate him with, with something that we don't believe you should associate him with, that's called blasphemy. And there's a rule against that. And Paul, if you break that rule... You're going to go to jail, and we're, potentially you're even going to be killed for it. And Paul decides in his own mind, you know what? That's a rule that should be broken. And Paul breaks it. So then Paul gets arrested by the Jewish leaders, and with some time, after some time transpires, the Roman authorities actually get a hold of Paul, and that actually helps him. If you, if you look, read the text, you'll understand that actually saves Paul's life, because if he was in the authority, underneath the authorities of the Jewish people, they would have killed him. But the fact that he's a Roman citizen, and now he's under the authority of the Roman government, it actually protects him because they can't find, like, they don't care about the Jewish law. And they can't find anything that this guy has done wrong. And so we're going to land in chapter 13 today, and so much time has transpired that Paul is now underneath a new governor. A new governor, a guy named Festus, steps in, and the old governor stepped out. And so now Festus is in, and he's like, okay, I'm supposed to do something with this guy named Paul that all these Jewish people they want him dead like why I'm trying to figure all that out and so he's visited king or um, the governor Festus is visited by this king named Agrippa and this is where we're going to land in the story today and Agrippa has authority over Jewish affairs and so Festus wants to bend his ear to figure out what he should do with Paul let's pick up in verse 13 a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king, and he said, There's a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them this is not the Roman custom, to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. So when they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. 
when his accusers got up to speak, they didn't charge him with any of the crimes that I would have expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion. Don't miss this. This is big for our conversation today. And about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss of how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. So ultimately, what we have is Festus, this new governor that's in place, trying to figure out what in the world am I supposed to do with this guy named Paul? Because the only thing that he can gather in all the information, all the accusations against him, is that he believed a dead man lives. Fast forward 2,000 years. We got up this morning, got ready, put on some clothes, argued with our kids, wrestled with our kids to get them ready. Maybe you had an argument with your spouse on, your, on the way here. Some of you guys just looked at each other, so that probably really happened. And we're here right now because we believe a dead man lives. And so really what we're going to get at today, where we're going, is this idea that although we're kind of looking at Paul and like why he's on trial and all the accusations against him, friends, ultimately, the person who's been on trial for the last 2,000 years, and he'll be on trial until he comes back as a guy named Jesus. He's on trial. In many of our minds, especially people that are unbelievers, in their minds subconsciously oftentimes they're thinking, man, is this guy really who he says he is? Sometimes, if we're honest, can we have an honest dialogue this morning? Sometimes, even as believers, many of us being brought up in the church, we still kind of back up sometimes. Maybe a doubt starts to come in. Is he really who he says he is? Let's do this. Let's, I think this would be valuable for our conversation today. Let's back off of everything we've ever known, right? I mean, if you've been in church your whole life, you've got a lot of Bible answers, and this has kind of been your environment. This has been the context in which you grew up in. So everything is just, you understand, you understand who Jesus is and the fact that he died for your sins, all these different things. And for some of you, this also may be very new, but for, for our conversation, for the purposes of our conversation, let's do this. Let's back off of everything we know. Can we do this? Let's back off and kind of what I would call de-church ourselves. And let's do our best to empathize with somebody who might be hearing this for the first time. Friends, I believe empathy is probably one of the best areas that any of us can grow in, especially when it comes to people that are outside of here that really don't have a context in which to put all of this Jesus conversation, and, you know, I don't exactly know where to fit him in my life, even though a lot of these people, they call themselves Christians, they seem to be pretty serious about this guy. And so let me do this. Let me play the part of an unbeliever. And let's together kind of process through what this information would sound like if we were hearing it for the first time, okay? So maybe it would go something like this. I'm the unbeliever. Okay, so you're telling me there's a guy named Jesus. I've heard about him, of course. You know, it's hard not to have heard about Jesus. And about 2,000 years ago, roundabout, he, he claimed to be the Messiah, okay? Which meant he was the Son of God or something like that. Okay, what's next? Okay, there were religious leaders that were around him. And they hated this new message that he was bringing, especially the fact that he claimed to be the Son of God. And so these religious leaders are actually the ones that end up getting him killed with help from the Roman authorities. Okay? And again, you can go back. Um, anybody that doesn't believe that is, you know, ignorant of the fact of this is historical accounts and all types of different literature. So this is proven. This is proven evidence at this point. But then, now you're telling me that after three days... 
after being buried, after he was you know, crucified and they put him in a grave, that he walked away from the grave. So this guy actually rose from the dead. All right, now you're getting kind of weird on me, but I'm listening. Now you're saying that if I want to be in heaven, which I don't even know if I believe in it, that I have to give this guy Jesus my life and start living for him and following him because I have sin in my life, all of us do, because I have the sin in my life requires me to have the blood sacrifice of Jesus, like the blood had to be shed on my behalf. And by doing that, me putting my faith in that, now I'm what you're calling saved, and I get to have an eternity with Jesus and all the other people who believe in Jesus in heaven. That just sounds crazy. It does, doesn't it? I mean, to an unbelieving audience, doesn't this sound crazy? Because at the end of the day, this is what they're asking. Where is the evidence? Like, where's the evidence for this? And all of us, and not all of us, I'm sorry, a lot of us who grew up in the church and we have this context of the Bible, that's the first place we want to go, isn't it? Now stay with me because I don't want you to hear something that I'm not trying to say. We want to go to the scriptures and say, well, yeah, 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 the Bible says, let me show you like John 3, 16. Let me... Here's the problem. If people don't look to the Bible as an authority for their life, you're going to the wrong place first. Let me be very clear. This church will always put itself underneath the authority of the scriptures. We believe in the word of God. We believe in its authority. We believe it's inspired by God. But to an unbelieving world, sometimes if that's the first place that we take them, it doesn't do us a whole lot of good because they're saying, well, you're taking me, you're using something that I'm not even sure I believe in. You're using something that I'm not even giving authority for my own life. So where is the evidence? Friends, ultimately, I think the answer to that question and what we're kind of, I'm going to spend the rest of our time doing and unfolding is, it's you. It's you. It's me. We are the evidence. And I really do believe this. I believe there's a big like, group of people within this unbelieving context, all the people who are not believers, I believe there's this big group in that group who desperately wants to believe. Who desperately wants to believe. They want to believe that there's more to life than them. They want to believe in this thing called saving grace, and no matter how screwed up and messed up their past looks, that they can be forgiven and be given a new life, and that God actually has a purpose for them. They desperately want to believe that. But sometimes what they are observing from people who call call themselves Christians I think they look and they observe and they think to themselves, if that's what it is, no thanks. It puts a lot of pressure on us, doesn't it? It does. And this is where I think we have to have an honest dialogue this morning and understand that sometimes the very things that we try to use to disqualify ourselves, because maybe, maybe some of us are thinking, don't look at me, I'm not that example. But the very things that we would use, whatever that list is, it says, hey, like if you're looking at me, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, I put my faith in him, but if you're looking at me, man, here's the five things of why you shouldn't look at me, and here's what I want to hope, hopefully help you to see this morning. Those may be the very five things that you start with. Because when it comes down to the evidence, we and how we live and how we pursue and approach people who don't have faith in Christ, man, this, this is huge. So what evidence, evidence do we have? 
Let's talk about this for a second. There's a gal named Amanda Knox, and maybe many of you are familiar with this. And so I want to talk about this particular story uh, because of what I watched just a few weeks ago. And it has a lot to do with evidence. And I'm not here to claim whether she's innocent or guilty, okay? I just want to talk to you about some things that I observed that were very disturbing when I watched this documentary. You see, she was accused in another country of being a part of a murder scheme. And if you watched any news when this was going down, I mean, like, this was the hot story. And news was all over the place about this story. But what they've determined now, and you can go back and you can watch this documentary if you have Netflix, is so much of the information that was being put out against her was wrong. And behind the scenes, all the corruption that was taking place in the, in the country that she was in, there was no DNA evidence that said that she was on scene, but there, were, there was tons of DNA evidence on another guy that has now been charged and accused of murder. But what is probably one of the most eerie things that you'll witness if you were to watch this documentary is how many reporters said, yeah, we knew that we were actually sharing false information. Because we wanted to have our name on the top story. Like the paper was going out the next week and we wanted to make sure we were the ones that got to put our name on that paper because we wanted like, hey, we're, we're the ones that shared the story and the news as, as, you know, earlier than anybody else. And so they shared all this false information that ultimately got her accused. They told this young lady that when she was in prison, they, gave, uh, <clears throat> they took her blood and they said, hey, you've got HIV. And she didn't and they knew she didn't. But they were trying to scare her into some type of admission. So then... The media hears that she's got HIV, and so they report it. So many things. I mean, this young lady was drugged through the mud. Now, again, at the end of the day, I don't know if she's innocent or guilty. But if I was just looking at the evidence, she seemed to be a victim in this whole story because of how the media just drug her through the mud with tons of information and false accounts. Guys, Let's have an honest conversation. We are the media in which people often get their information about who God is. And sometimes we don't give good evidence. Sometimes our lives, we tell ourselves, man, my life is not good evidence. Sometimes we actually show things that Christ wouldn't have anything to do with. And so because we know that, like, we, we know this, right? We know our screw-ups and mess-ups better than anybody. And so behind the scenes, when we're thinking to yourself, and this is kind of the elephant in the room right now, many of you are thinking, it's like, man, there's no way I could ever be good evidence for the fact that a dead man now lives because you don't know the mess that's following my life. You don't know how screwed up and jacked up my life is, Aaron, to say that I should ever be even considered evidence that a dead man now lives and that people should put their faith in Jesus, like, I, I'm, not, I'm not that person. But I believe, and we're going to talk about this, I believe the very thing that you're using to disqualify yourself actually qualifies you in the hands of God. Let me, let me talk about it this way. Let's talk about my marriage for a second. I've been married to my smoking hot wife for 14 plus years now. And when we stood in front of each other and we shared our vows, I looked at her and I said, I'm going to honor you through the good and through the bad. Now, at that point in time, those were just words. But I have spent the last 14 plus years trying to prove to her that I meant them. But I've messed it up sometimes, too. And so what I could do is say, man... I've already gone back. I've already messed up what I told you I would do. So you know what? I'm going to throw in the towel, and I'm done. Like, I've already messed it up. There's no reason to move forward. 
And sometimes that's kind of what we do in our minds when it comes to our faith and the mess-ups we have in our life when it comes to pursuing Jesus. But here's what I've committed to my wife. Hey, I know that I've messed up, but because of the commitment that I've made to you, I'm going to come back to the table every single time, hoping to learn from my mistakes and trying to do this better. Friends, for those of us that have put our faith in Jesus, we made a commitment. And that commitment is that we're going to do our absolute best to reflect his light, his love, his truth, and his grace in our lives. But then we mess up. And when we mess up, we use whatever it is that we messed up in to oftentimes be the very thing that we disqualify ourselves with and discourage ourselves with. And we say, you know what? I can't be that person. Like, I... I'm not that person that's going to help somebody else find Jesus. My life, hey, don't look at my life. I'm not the hero. I'm not that person you should be looking at of whether or not a dead man actually lives. Aaron, my life couldn't possibly be evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. I'm a broken mess. Listen to me. If you haven't heard anything else that I've said this morning, this is where I want you to hear. Please listen to this. Your brokenness is the very evidence that people need to see. And it's not just your brokenness, it's what Jesus is doing in the midst of your brokenness, in the middle of your brokenness, through your brokenness. He's weaving this story together. And so here's what I personally learned is the best thing that you can do, no matter how jacked up your life is or has been in the past, the best thing you can do is lead with your brokenness, lead with transparency. And because when you do that, when you weave the story of Jesus in with your transparency of your brokenness, now we're talking about something called transformation. And when transparency and transformation come together, you become one of the best pieces of evidence that your unbelieving friends in this unbelieving world could ever see. I believe that with all my heart. Paul writes this when he's writing a letter to the Romans, and I think it's very appropriate for our conversation today. And remember, uh, Paul's writing this probably just about three years before the time that we read today, the fact that he's still in prison underneath the Roman authorities. He actually writes a, a letter to Rome. And he's seen all of these things happen in the context of faith, in the context of religion. And he kind of backs off of it. And I can imagine Paul thinking to himself, and he says, listen, guys, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While, that's a big word. It's a big word. While we were still sinners. Christ died for us. While we were still jacked up, jailed up, and jaded against the ways of God, while he still died for us. And so what I'm saying through all of this is don't hide your brokenness. Lead with it. Lead with it. I'm giving you permission this morning to lead with it because in the midst of you being transparent about your brokenness and about the mess in your life, as long as you've taken that step and you are pursuing Jesus, this weave of transformation and transparency becomes the best evidence that you could ever be for an unbelieving world. As I've been in ministry probably for the past, let's see what I've been in ministry, about 12 years now, I've come to like a couple coin phrases in my mind, and here's one of them I want to talk to you about this morning. It's this. Sometimes we make faith too much about our shared beliefs, which is our brains, right? Good theology, proper teaching, all that, rather than our shared brokenness, which is our bruises. Leave this up here for a second. I want to be really clear. 
like our beliefs, that's a big deal. I believe doctrine and good theology and understanding a biblical foundation, that's really, really important. Really important. But oftentimes we often lead with that and we talk about, like we make that our first approach to a world that doesn't even really care about good theology or what the Bible teaches. Do we want them to get there? Absolutely. The Bible has authority in our lives. It has authority over this church. But maybe, and this is the case I'm trying to build for you this morning, maybe we should be sharing our broken experiences and our bruises. Maybe that's what we lead with. Maybe that's a statement you need to write down. Sometimes we make faith too much about our shared beliefs, our brains, rather than our shared brokenness. I know that I've been guilty of that in the past. So instead of our defense being, Aaron, my life's too messy. I don't want anyone to look at me. Maybe you even think your life is so messy that if people were to look at you, you would lead them away from Jesus. Instead of us taking that approach, here's what I'm giving you full permission to do this morning. Lead with it. Lead with it. And allow this beautiful dance of your transparency and the transformation that's happening in your life become one of the best pieces of evidence that an unbelieving world is really desperate to see. They're looking at us, guys. They're not even really even looking at the church, even though we make up the church. But they're not even looking at the church. There's no context for church in their life because they're not a part of a church, but they're a part of your life because you're their friend. You're their neighbor. You're their family member. You're that random person that started a conversation with them in Starbucks. They're looking at us. Ultimately, what we're talking about today, guys, is if, you, if we were to break it down, it's love. It's love. And here's how I would define love. Number one, love does. Does what? Something. Love does something. Love doesn't sit idle. Love doesn't wait for somebody else to do it. Love does something. Maybe your something is leading with your broken, messy life and helping people to see what God's doing in you, even though you don't have it figured out yet. We had a conversation with a guy last week, and he said, you know what? I don't know if I can come to Trace anymore because I can't reconcile that all of this is true. I can't reconcile that I actually believe in all this. And we just looked at him and said, man, but we, are you willing to sit? Like, if there, is there anything else about our church? Are you, like, feeling unloved? Are you feeling like you don't belong? He's like, no, 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 it's just the information. It's just this idea that a dead man now lives, and that should change my life. And so we convinced him, stick around. And as much as we want a saving grace, the saving grace of Jesus to transform your life, we can actually learn from you. Because we want to kind of meet you in the midst of that struggle. And why is it? that you're having such a hard time understanding that a dead man now lives. Friends, that's the kind of church we want to be. We want people to come into this room who don't even believe what we believe. But if we get this wrong, guys like that, they're done. Love does. What does what? It does something. It leaves a trace. It lives an interruptible life. It empathizes with people that are hurting. It does extend hope when life hurts. That what, that's what love does. Number two, love defends it defends those who can't defend themselves. We've been talking about that here recently and how we're going to be a church that's going to stand up and step in for those who can't stand up for themselves. That we're going to throw parties around here for people that are mentally challenged and kids that maybe nobody else is paying attention to or maybe the kids that are getting bullied at school. Like those are the kind of people we're going to throw parties for because we're going to live out this idea of love that it defends. Last one, love demonstrates. Demonstrates what? 
Love demonstrates that God still wants to meet you in the midst of your brokenness, that you don't have to get your life all figured out first, that God actually wants to meet you in the midst of it, and we demonstrate that kind of grace and love here so that people understand, man, while I was still jacked up, jailed up, and jaded against God, like he, he actually sent his son to die for me. It was the best way love has ever been demonstrated. Here's what I believe, guys, and I'm going to close. I believe that you're the best, you're the best chance of helping somebody meet Jesus in your life. Maybe not everybody, but you are the best chance of somebody meeting Jesus in your life. And if you keep disqualifying yourself because of the things that you know are happening behind the scenes, you'll never be able to experience this beautiful story of transformation and transparency happening at the same time. And I really do believe it's the best piece of evidence that you'll ever give. That person in your life who's at this point has decided, I don't know if I can believe that a dead man still lives. Let me read something the Apostle Paul said. Again, this would have been really close to the time frame in which we've been reading and while he's been in jail and in the custody of the Roman authorities. He's seen a lot of religious stuff happen, and he's seen a lot of things done wrong within the context of faith and the context of God. And he writes this to the church in Corinth. He says this, Guys, listen, if I speak in tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, and again, the context there would be, if I do a bunch of religious stuff, a bunch of spiritual stuff, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, meaning I just, I'm just making a bunch of noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, again, context there, if I can teach you everything about the Bible and everything it means and everything it says and all the, you know, the big fancy words, give you the Greek, give you the Hebrew, if I can do all that, and if I have faith that can move mountains but I do not have love, I'm nothing. Man, don't miss this. So if we can do all this like spiritual stuff, all this stuff that's supposed to happen in church and we make ourselves feel really good about it, even doing our Christian charity, let's go give something to the homeless guy. But we don't have love, we are nothing. But don't miss this. If we, don't miss this. If we just, just, if we just have love, then we're something. If you just have love, you're something. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to the hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. But if I have love, I'll gain something. And then he jumps down in verse 13. <clears throat> he says, guys, listen, 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 listen. I've seen it all. I've done it all. I've experienced so many things. Paul, he's a Pharisee, man. He, he knows a ton of stuff about the Bible. He knows a ton of stuff about the law. He's seen, he's th seen things. He's done things. And he's like, guys, man, let me just break this down as simple as I possibly can. After it's all said and done, after all the, the spiritual rhetoric and the Christian charity and all the things that we do to make ourselves feel good about ourselves, it really comes down to this. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Friends, can I encourage you this morning? I don't care how jacked up and messy your life is. Allow your life to be evidence that a dead man now lives. Let me pray. Father, how quick 
we are to disqualify ourselves. And Lord, I know there are so many opportunities for me to do this. I know not everybody in here knows my story. You know my story. And the fact that I'm standing on this stage talking is crazy. Father, what you can do with a human life if it's truly handed over to you, this, this weave of transparency and transformation, and if we'll just be open and honest and start with a platform of truth, uh, Lord, it's incredible what you can do. Sometimes, like, we, we kind of look into the future and think, well, if I can just get there, if I can just know that much, if I can just accomplish these things, then maybe I could be a decent piece of evidence for Jesus. But no, you're actually telling us that it's now. Like, no matter how messy our life is. Father, would you help us to step into that? To understand that that doesn't disqualify us. As long as we're putting our faith in your son, Jesus, it actually qualifies us. And God, I think all of us understand, man, there's an unbelieving world out there that's kind of done with this spiritual rhetoric. They just want to see real life change. They want to hear from honest people that are willing to talk about how much they screw up versus how much they get it right. So Lord, we, we need help in this because, man, this is a playground for the enemy. He wants to come in and discourage us and say, whoa, 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 Aaron's not talking about you because your life really is too messed up. God, would you uproot any of those thoughts and emotions that exist in our heart today and let us step and lead with our brokenness. We pray this in your son's name. Everybody said, amen.